kids, you are dismissed for Sunday school downstairs. I hope you have a wonderful time learning and growing in this season of Advent with the teachers that have set apart this time to be with you. Now, I don't know if it's clear to you all by now, but uh, Advent is a season I'm really excited for. I, I love, I mean, that's my personal time of year where I really get excited. And part of it is just because of my experiences growing up, not necessarily celebrating Advent, but celebrating Christmas. You know, you get the excitement of, uh, of, of all that, that Christmas brings. And depending on, on what, ad, or what's, what sort of traditions you grew up in, whether it was uh, chocolate calendars or daily rhythm of, of spiritual practices like, like devotions and things like that leading up to Christmas, we all recognize that there's something special about this time of year. And it's not necessarily you know, all the, the, the cookie parties and, and concerts and things like that, although those are, those are fun and good things, but ultimately, those are things that stir our hearts for something deeper and greater and more. Now, I know for, for myself, every year as Christmas approached, I would get more and more excited to the point where every year, I, I kid you not, every year I would get sick to my stomach in the, the week leading up to Christmas just because I was excited, not because I was actually getting sick from kids at school or anything like that, but because I was so excited for what was going to happen. We would go up to New Hampshire and, and, and we would all gather, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, my cousins, and, and we'd rent out this chalet and Actually, it was at Camp Spofford. I don't know, some of you may know Camp Spofford, but um, there was this beautiful chalet. We'd all get to be there for like a, a week, and, and it was just so much fun that my anticipation for it to, to come the next year w- was just overwhelming. My body couldn't handle it, right? And so I would lose sleep. I'd be sick to my stomach. I'd be so excited, all for the, the joy of what I knew was coming and being able to gather together and, and celebrate Christmas. And so I, I hope that we could relate in some capacity to the excitement that, that Christmas brings to many of us, that, that it's not just to, to be a season that, that, or a holiday that comes and goes in our year, but it's a, it's a, it's a holiday that by, by its mere presence stirs in us something that we don't normally get to experience in our, in our world, right? This idea of building anticipation and expectation, and again, as a child, it was that anticipation for being with family and opening presents on Christmas morning and all that. But, but we know, we should know, that our hearts were created to anticipate and find their hope in something far greater than anything this world has to offer. So for me, I really want to encourage you to think about this Advent season as you enter into it. More than making sure that you're here each Sunday morning to worship with the body of Christ, I hope you'll think about what a, a rhythm or a method or some, some time that God is inviting you to spend with him each and every day, not just thinking on what God's word says, but to think about the hope we have in Christ and the hope that is ours as we anticipate his first coming or remember his first coming and anticipate his return, his second coming, where we will do as, as the worship team led in being taken to where Jesus has gone to prepare a home for us. You know, there's, there's songs we sing like Joy to the World that have lyrics in them like Let Every Heart Prepare Him Room or, or O Holy Night, A Weary World Rejoices. That weariness is, is, is in our, our longing, our hunger for God to do what, what we desire, that he would correct the wrongs in this world, that he would, that he would set things at peace again. There was a, a, a lyric in, um, I think it was O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I was kind of lost in, in the songs this morning, but, but it's that desiring for the peace of heaven to be here among us in this world. 
I mean, is that your longing? Is that your desire? I know some people have, have experienced things this year, and I'm, I'm going off tangent, so I apologize now, but some people have experienced things this year that when they hear that line in the song sung, a weary world rejoices, they resonate very strongly with that word weary. We're weary. We're longing for God's solution to what's broken in this world. We experience the pain and anguish of loss and, and discouragement and disappointment in this world, and we long for the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. And guess what, church? Advent is that season where God invites you to enter into that invitation, to pay attention to the hope that he offers, to pay more attention to that than the discouragement and disappointment and, and loss we might feel in this world. All these things, the songs that we sing, the, the, the parties we attend, the, 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 the moments of, of reflecting in Advent, they're all meant to point us to something greater. And it's a promise. It's a promise, and it's a series of promises given to us in the Bible that, that are meant to, 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 to lift us up, to encourage us, to, to move forward. The worship team, uh, Nina, mentioned this morning this 400 years of silence between the, New, the Old Testament and the New Testament. 400 years where the people of God had, had walked away from God, but there were still those who were walking with God in faith who were wondering when God was going to do what he had said to do, when God was going to show up, when he was going to give a word, when he was going to speak to them again. And in that silence, what carried them forward? What kept their hope in Christ? What kept them moving forward toward the promise that God had given them? It's the promises of the Bible that they clung to, and Advent is that season that reminds us of these promises, that encourages us to think on these promises, to find hope in these promises, and to keep moving forward in faith. It's a promise that Isaiah speaks of back in Isaiah 7, 14, where he writes, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The sign was a sign of, of God fulfilling his promise to his people. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And again in Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God has given us a child of promise. And this child of promise should remind us that God is still at work, God has not gone to sleep. He's not forgotten his promises. He's not forgotten his people. He's still at work. Even though you may think he's not there for 400 years, he's still faithful to his promises. And to us, a child is born. And so when Jesus is eventually born in Bethlehem, Luke tells his readers in Luke 2, 6, that while Mary and Joseph were there, the time came for Mary to give birth. This should make us realize God didn't forget his promise. God was fulfilling his promise in the right time, in the right way. Paul puts it a little bit different. He puts it into more of a historical context for us in Galatians chapter 4. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. I think we might sometimes lose the, the magnitude, the hugeness of this moment when Jesus is born. 
We get swept up into the, the imagery of this child in the manger and, and the animals and, uh, gathering around and, and the, the shepherds coming to visit. And, and, and in some sense, it's because we've, we practice it year after year after year. But, but we lose sight of the magnitude of this moment, that this is a moment that has been anticipated for years and years and years. But not just anticipated, it's, it's what we take hope in, it's what we cling to, that a day would come when Jesus would send forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. More than adoring a baby in a manger is celebrating the steadfast faithfulness of our God. A God who had promised to send the seed of Eve to crush the head of the seed of the serpent, to undo what sin had done, to bring the peace of heaven to this earth. And this promise actually begins to take shape way back in Genesis 12, when God visits a man named Abram and, and promises to make him the father of many nations, to, to give him descendants that are more numerous than the, the dust of the earth. And what makes this promise, a difficult promise, I'm sure for Abram and his wife Sarah to wrap their heads around, certainly for us as well, I would imagine, is that Abram is 75 years old when he's given this promise. 75 years old when, when God visits him and says, hey, you're going to have, you're going to be the father of many nations. And, and, and it's not just that he's old that makes this hard to believe. He doesn't have any children at this point. He and his wife have, don't have children. Sarah's womb has been closed, right? And, and so it makes it a little bit hard to, to believe and, and, and understand how God is going to be faithful to fulfill his promise of giving Abram many descendants. But I think what the Bible teaches us is helpful for us to remember in this moment that what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so this morning, what I want to encourage us to do as we think about Advent is to look back on a promise that God gave in the Old Testament and God began to, to fulfill in the Old Testament, but how the fulfillment of that promise in the Old Testament points forward to the ultimate fulfillment we have in celebrating the birth of Christ at Christmas. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open to Genesis chapter 21. I'm going to read for us the first seven verses. These seven verses are the, the, the account of the birth of, of Abram's son, Isaac, his only son. Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 to 7. The Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abram called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abram, Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abram was 100 years, Abraham sorry, was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born uh, to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? 
Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Heavenly Father, you are faithful. You are steadfast. You are a God whose promises given will be fulfilled. And Lord, in this season that we're entering into of Advent, I pray as we think on the birth of Isaac, that we would be reminded of the promises that you have yet to fulfill and, and, and to be encouraged, to be filled with hope and expectation that, that you are not done and that you will accomplish all that you have set forth to do. So Lord, speak to us through the story of Isaac's birth. Help us to understand who you are and what you're doing and where you're leading your people. It's through Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I believe in the account of the birth of Isaac is a story that stirs our excitement, that, 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 that stirs our, and builds our anticipation ultimately for the birth of Jesus. I mean, Christmas time is a time where we think on the birth of Christ, and we go way back to the birth of Isaac to help us get there. Now, church, I want you to think on these things. I want you to consider what God has done and why that should give us hope and anticipation for what he will yet do. But, but Isaac is more than just a child who's miraculously born to older parents. Isaac is a, is a type of child. He's a type of child born of a promise in a miraculous way that's only possible by God. And, and scholars call this typology, right? It comes from this Greek word typos, which, or typos, which refers to making a representation of an image. Uh, the way typology works is it's a certain kind of person or a place or an event that happens in history that represents a, a greater, more full fulfillment in the future that's to come, and it points forward to that fulfillment. And so, it's kind of like if you've gone on hikes or, or traveled, it's like a, way, a waypoint or, or a trail marker pointing the way along to make sure that you're on the right path, head in the right direction, and that you will arrive at the top of the mountain that you're hiking. A good example of typology is found in John chapter 3, where a man named Nicodemus visits Jesus in the night with this question, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus not what Nicodemus must do. He's already said that. He says he must believe and be born again. But he tells Nicodemus now what Jesus must do, right? In verses 14 and 15, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Jesus was talking about two things here. He was speaking of the, the kind of sacrifice that Jesus would make on behalf of his people, but he was using an event in the past from Israel's history to help him understand what that sacrifice was. The event he's talking about is in the Old Testament when, when the people of Israel disobey God, and, and as a result, a, a horde of poisonous snakes, which sounds like, uh, well, it sounds like hell to me, uh, invade the camp. And, and these snakes are biting the people and, and destroying the people, and they cry out to God for help. They say, Moses, speak to God for us. Ask him for forgiveness. Ask that he'll save us. And God says to Moses, I want you to make an image of a snake, put it on a pole, and hold it up. And everyone who looks on this serpent will be healed and will be saved. 
And so this idea, this salvation, this, this, this saving moment in Israel's history back in the wilderness points forward to a greater sacrifice that will be given for them when Jesus himself is lifted up on a pole, lifted up on a Roman cross, a wooden Roman cross, that anyone who looks upon him in faith might be saved. And so there's this typology that's happening here where Jesus recalls this moment from Israel's past and then points forward to this future moment that he himself will be the ultimate fulfillment of, the, the type of salvation that was to come. And so I want us to consider the fact that Isaac's birth, and not just his birth, but his life, serve as a type that points to Jesus as the ultimate child of promise. See, Isaac is a waypoint on the journey toward salvation in Jesus. He's not just a, a, a person in Jesus' lineage. His very life, the character and shape of his birth and his life point us to more fully appreciate and give thanks for what Jesus ushers in at the advent of, of, of him, of his life. So I want us to take a look at Isaac's birth this morning, consider a couple of things as, and how it points us to, to the, the birth and life of Jesus and how I hope it builds excitement and anticipation. Why? Because these things that happen throughout history aren't happening by chance, but everything is meticulously cared for by God and planned out and accomplished by his hand. Moses tells us in Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, that the Lord visited Sarah as he had promised. <clears throat> and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. See, Isaac, Isaac is a child of promise. Isaac is born only because God has promised to give Abram and Sarai a child. 75 years they've lived this earth. 75 years, well, they weren't married for 75 years, but they'd been married a long, long time. And up to this point, they had been without child. Enter the Lord, visiting them, and Isaac comes on the scene. Isaac is a child of promise. But more important, Isaac is a key reminder during Advent that God is faithful, that God is faithful to fulfill his promises in the present as well, just as he has in the past, and he will in the future as well. See, God's visit here with Sarah, again, is not happening by chance. It's not the first time that God has visited Sarah. And so it's not by surprise that, that this happens. If you flip back a few chapters in your Bible, it's a year earlier when, when, when Sarah and Abram are 99 years old. God tells Abram that, that he's going to visit, that God will visit Sarah. In, in chapter 17, verses 15 to 16, God said to Abram this. He said, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I, I will bless her, and she'll, she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Again, this promise that God had originally given to Abraham back in Genesis 12, long time ago, 75, when they were 75 years old, and when he was 
promising Abram that, hey, you may be old, you may not have any children, but I'm going to give you more descendants than, than the dust of the earth. God now shows up and says, hey, I'm going to fulfill this promise. And your wife, Sarah, who's 99 years old, I'm going to bless her. I'm going to give you a son by her. I'll bless her and she shall become, she shall become nations, right? In, in a sense, she'll be the mother of many nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then if you just look down, if you've got your Bibles open to Genesis 17, uh, we're not going to have it up on the screen, but <clears throat> look at verse 21, where God tells Abraham that Sarah will be with child in what? One year from this conversation. See, the child that, that, that Sarah would bear to, to Abraham would be one to whom God's promise of many descendants and blessings to the nations would pass through, and, and she would be with, with child one year from when God visits with Abraham. And so we're, you know, fast forward to our passage in Genesis 21. It's been a year since God visited Abraham, and God visits Sarah. And this child of promise was not just, hey, you're going to have a child so you don't have to deal with the, the kind of the, the, the stigma in your culture of not having a child of your own womb. It's more than that. It's a specific child of promise, a child who would carry the, the, the promises of God through him, through his lineage, through his, his, his generation. My dad likes to joke around with me and tell me that good looks skipped a generation, Right? Hang on, because the, the joke's on him because the good looks skipped his generation. I wrote that. I'm going to have to call him later on and tell him that because I, I thought of that after the fact. But, but here's the thing. This is not how God fulfills his promises, right? It's not here or there. God's promise has passed down from generation to generation through one child of promise. This is why when you read the story of, of Israel throughout the Old Testament, you see these names come up, and they're very important to understanding how the promises of God have been passed down from generation to generation until he fulfills them. One person of each generation, right, of, of Abraham's lineage. This is why Matthew's, uh, in Matthew's gospel, it almost feels a little bit tedious. When you're reading the, the Gospel of Matthew, you're like, oh, come on, I want to get to the, the birth narrative. But, but Matthew leads us generation by generation through the lineage of Jesus from Abraham up to the birth of Christ, right? At the end of chapter 1, verse 17, Matthew tells us, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to, to the deportation to, to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. I think we need to notice that from Abraham to David and eventually to Jesus, each part of that genealogy is important for us to pay attention to. Each part of the genealogy tells a story. And not just here's how God's promise is fulfilled. This is how Jesus is actually related to Abraham. It's that in the story of these individuals, their lives are, are waypoints on, on the journey. They should stir excitement because they tell us something about the kind of Savior that's to be born in a manger. And Isaac's birth is a part of that exciting lineage. But the birth of Isaac, this moment, is not the, it's not the top of the mountain. It's not the pinnacle of the experience. It's not the, the pinnacle of the promise. It's this waypoint on the, along the way. 
See, on a, on a hike, a, a waypoint is that stopping point where you can catch your breath, where you can take a drink of water, where you can eat a snack, where you can, you know, retie your boots, where you can kind of make sure you've got all your supplies ready to go into the next leg of the journey. But the waypoint, it's not the top of the mountain, right? It's not, to, it's not the goal toward which you've been hiking. It's just a reminder that you're getting closer and closer to the top. As you get closer to the top of a mountain, you know, the trees might get more sparse or they might seem shorter. The air might get a little thicker or cooler, maybe, maybe even get a little bit foggy depending on whether or not your, your climb is taking you up into the, the cloud level. But, but each of these observations are important to encourage you to keep going. You're almost there. Keep moving forward. Keep following this path. And when you do arrive, the view is so much better than you could ever imagine. No picture can capture this. <clears throat> we kind of cheated, but I remember a, a few years back, Tar and I went to um, Mount Washington in New Hampshire, and we, we, we drove to the, the center where you can then take a train to the top of the mountain. So we didn't do the hiking part, but, but I'll tell you what, they had postcards in the, in the welcome center at the bottom of the, of the mountain, and I'm like, wow, these look pretty, you know, postcards, pictures, all that. But it's nothing in comparison to getting to the top and looking at this 360 view of the mountain ranges. Church, there are waypoints along the life of faith that we need to pay attention to. But recognize that they're there to encourage us to keep going, to keep moving forward, to keep pursuing the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the promise of God that he is yet to fulfill. Waypoints are important for, for stirring our hearts, for exciting us, and, and, and for, for building that, that excitement to keep going forward. And Advent is filled with these waypoints that remind us that, that we haven't yet reached the top of the mountain, but we're getting closer and closer and closer. You know, the stories we read and celebrate, the songs that we sing, they're filled with theology of promise, right? They all serve to help us look forward to this greater fulfillment that's ahead of us. And Isaac's birth is one of those moments. The birth of Isaac, this child of promise, this child who was born to this woman who had no human, there was no human way possible at this point that she was going to give birth to a child. And yet she does, because God has promised to do so. It kind of makes you think of another miraculous birth. Not that Mary was unable to give birth but the birth of the child that she gave birth to was absolutely miraculous because it was not at her hand or, or Joseph's hand that she was able to be with child, but purely because of God's promise to look on her with favor. See, without the birth of, of Isaac in our Bibles, without the birth of Isaac to Abram and Sarah, there's no Jacob. And, and if there's no Jacob, then, then there's no 12 sons of Jacob which form the, 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 the tribes of Israel. And if there's no tribes of Israel, then there's no Judah, one of the 12 tribes, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And if there's no Judah, there's no King David, and so on and so on and so on. The life of Isaac points forward to the birth of Christ. But more than just foreshadowing and being a type of child of promise is the way that Isaac's birth is, is this waypoint on the journey to God fulfilling his promise. During Advent, Isaac's birth reminds us 
that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Whether it's 25 years, 400 years, 700 years, whatever it is, if God has declared that he will do this, it will be accomplished. We just have to focus on these waypoints to allow him to stir that hope and excitement in our hearts and stay faithful to moving the path forward. But there's, there's one more way that Isaac's birth points forward as a type of child of promise to a greater fulfillment in Jesus. Look at verses 3 to 7 in Genesis chapter 21. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when, he, when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham and Sarah, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. See, this laughter that Sarah's talking about here is not being laughed at or mocked. It's not the kind of like scoffing laughter one might have when you hear something you think is foolish or ridiculous to believe. What Sarah's talking about is a joy-filled laughter of celebration. She's talking about this overflowing joy of, look what God has done for me. People will look upon what God has done, and, and they too will, will celebrate. They'll see God's faithfulness. They'll see the might and majesty of our God, right? See, what, what she's expecting people to celebrate is this gift that God graciously gave her when her womb had been closed, I think even today, few people truly understand the pain and grief a woman feels when she's not able to give birth to her own child. And for Sarah, she, she endured that, the, the, the stigma, the pain, the kind of almost feeling shunned by people. Whether or not they actually did is almost irrelevant because that's what she felt. She felt like she was, she was marred, she was broken, there was something wrong with her, right? And yet God was gracious to open her womb and to give her a child of promise. What's impossible for man is not, or is possible with God. And he gave to Abram and Sarah a child, Isaac. And what this laughter reminds us of, or how this laughter works in thinking on, on the, Isaac's birth narrative, is almost like the, 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 um, the shadow side, the other side of that laughter, right? You can almost imagine how shocking and unimaginable it would be that, that God gives you this child, and then just a few, uh, a chapter later, tells Sarah's husband that he's to go and sacrifice this ch- child of promise back to God. Right? There's something that's going on here because the joy and laughter that Sarah experiences in the birth of Isaac points, I think, to the, the greater, the, the, un, uh, the untouchable laughter we have in the birth of Jesus. Stick with me for a minute. Isaac represents not just this child of promise, but he also represents a type uh, of sacrifice that God would accomplish in atoning for our sins. In chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, we're told this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, and he said, here I am. 
He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, sacrifices in those day and ages, were, it, was, it was common throughout the land. Regardless of your religion or your culture, sacrifice was seen as a way of atoning for our sins with a God, right? And specifically, this idea of the sacrifice took, uh, took on this role within the life of Israel. But here, God says to Abraham, or God tells Moses, or God tells us through Moses, that this is a test of faith for Abraham. God wants to know if Abraham will love and trust him more than the things of this world. And so after going a hundred years without a son, God asks him, will you sacrifice this son? Do you love me more than that? Do you believe that your joy, your laughter comes not in this, this child of promise, but in what God himself will provide? Numerous times throughout this part of Abraham and Isaac's story, we're told that Isaac is Abraham's son, his only son. If you, read the, if you read the fullness of the narrative, you'll see it. He keeps saying, uh, his son, his only son. And, and I think this points us forward to this, this child, this son, this father, sorry, who, who loved the world so much that he made his own son, his only son, an atoning sacrifice for us. See, Abraham's only son, Isaac, is a type of sacrifice that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who was lifted up and sacrificed on a Roman cross, that all who look on him in faith would be saved. When we experience, when we experience laughter in the story of Isaac's birth, we realize that any gift we experience in this world apart from God is temporary. It is not out of reach of the, the pain and anguish we feel of sin in this world, right? But yet, we're reminded in this story that more than the laughter God brings to Abraham and Sarah in the birth of Isaac is the ultimate joy and, 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 and laughter that are brought to us through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. After being told to, to sacrifice his son, his only son, we're told that Abraham gathers up the supplies needed to make a sacrifice to the Lord and journeys with Isaac to the place of sacrifice, to the place of Moriah. Now, while they're on their way, there's something interesting that happens in, in the story. Isaac sees the wood. He, he sees the, the fire for the sacrifice. He sees the, the oil, all those things that they need. And he turns to his, his dad and says, Dad, where are we going to get the sacrifice from? Where's the burnt offering coming from? Now, mind you, Abraham knows in his mind what he's been told to do. And as he walks with Isaac up the hill, up the, up the mountain, he, he, listen to what he says to, to Isaac in response in chapter 22, verse 8. Abraham said, Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. The story goes on that after binding Isaac and, 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 and putting him on the altar, God stops Abraham's hand from going forward with the sacrifice and instead points out to Abraham a ram caught in the thicket, which the real sacrifice for atonement was that day. That day, God did provide a burnt offering for the altar. It was this ram. But ultimately, in the life of Isaac, 
we're pointed forward to a type of sacrifice where God himself provided a sacrificial lamb. Isaac's birth and life are, are, are an important waypoint on the path to God fulfilling his promise, right? His birth and life are, are, are also an important type that shows the type of sacrifice that God would accomplish to atone for sins in this world. In other words, to, 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 to clothe us in righteousness. This is what John the Baptist was declaring when he saw Jesus walking by the Jordan River, when, when he declared for all to hear, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, just as Abraham told Isaac long ago, God himself also provided the lamb for the burnt offering, which atones for the sins of the world. I think it's important that we understand that, that Old, Old Testament sacrifices, even like this one that where Abraham and Isaac sacrificed a, a ram on, on the mountain, on the altar, they were insufficient. Yeah, they, they, they kind of bought us some time. They gave us a reprieve. They, they offered us kind of this, this restoration of relationship, but only until you sinned again. They were an insufficient sacrifice. They were a temporary reprieve in our guilt. But, but the author of Hebrews reminds us why this child of promise in Jesus, why this type of sacrifice in the sacrificial lamb is so important to our, to our life in Christ, to the, the hope we have. Because in Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews says this, and by that will, sorry, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Jesus is that sacrifice once and for all. There's no need for this repetition of sacrifice, but there's something sufficient in the, in the sacrifice of this child of promise, born in a manger, born in Bethlehem. It goes on to say, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be a, made a footstool for his, his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. See, in this, this narrative, the story of, of, the, of the sacrifice of Isaac, where God... And it, commands Abraham to, to sacrifice his son, his only son. That in God staying his hand and, and, and God giving Abraham those words to say to Isaac, God will, himself will provide the sacrifice, we are reminded that the birth of, of, of a child in the manger in Bethlehem is so much more than this precious moment to adore this child but it's this act of God fulfilling his promise to send forth his only son, to send forth the lamb for the sacrifice, the lamb for the altar, who would atone for Israel's sin, who would atone for our sins once and for all. And so the, the joy and laughter that Isaac's birth brought Forth in, in Sarah and Abraham, they, they pointed to a, a greater laughter. Her laughter was only temporary. Mind you, I mean, I don't know how much time transpired, at least eight days, between uh, when Isaac was born and when, well, more than eight days, actually, because he's a young boy walking with his dad. But, but in that time, right, between when Isaac is born and Sarah is filled with laughter and joy and, and what God has provided, to that moment when she's faced with the reality that God has commanded her husband to sacrifice her only son. 
And that laughter is squandered, is gone. Because she's terrified. God, don't take away this one gift you've given me. The reason why people will laugh with me, because look how you've graciously provided. But what this story tells us is that her hope, our hope, is never in the, the, the immediate temporary blessing, the waypoints. The waypoints are there to point us forward to the greater fulfillment that's ours in Christ Jesus. See, the joy and laughter that Isaac's birth brought forth points to an, an even greater joy and laughter and hope that would be fulfilled through this child who was being born in a manger, who would one day be lifted up on a pole, that all who might look upon him would be atoned for, would be forgiven. So this Advent season, I, I hope we'll slow down, church. I hope we'll slow down to notice the waypoints along the journey of faith to God redeeming his creation. I think the story of Isaac's birth and life doesn't just, it doesn't teach us about Abraham and Sarah's faithfulness. This is not one of those moments where we're supposed to celebrate how faithful they were and then try and be like them. It doesn't emphasize how we're to be better disciples. At least that's not the main point of the story of Isaac's birth. The story of Isaac's birth and his life reminds us of God's faithfulness, of his steadfast faithfulness to his, to his promises and to his people. And hopefully it helps us refocus our attention on the fact that God has not forsaken us. We may feel like we're living in those 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But look back on the waypoints that we've passed, church. Look what God has done. Look how he, the, the things he has done, and not just to kind of lift our spirits and get us to the next waypoint, but they're to remind us that God will accomplish all that he has set about to accomplish. So I'm going to invite you to embrace Advent this year. Maybe it's committing to, to having your, your time of devotions with the Lord a little bit differently. Maybe you want to read the, some of the, the Old Testament promises in a different way this year. Maybe you want to pick up a, you know, a trusted resource that helps you reflect on the promises of God and how they might be fulfilled in Christ. Whatever it is, embrace Advent this year. Embrace this season of, of, of stirring our awe and wonder at what God has promised to do. Embrace the season of, of noticing what God has done and, and what he has yet to do. See, for Abraham and Sarah, they, they lived in a season of Advent in anticipation for 25 years. From the moment when God promised to make Abraham the father of many nations to that moment when, when God brings them Isaac. It was 25 years. Abraham was 75 when first God first promised him, and 100 years when Isaac was born. And, and in that time, they were able to have a glimpse of God fulfilling this promise to give them descendants. They didn't live long enough to see the many descendants that God had promised them. But all they had to do was live long enough to see that one descendant, to find the hope in that waypoint of noticing God's faithful hand at work in their life. 
Church, our God is faithful to fulfill his promises, and all his promises are fulfilled in this child of promise, born in a manger, born in Bethlehem. So let's embrace this season of Advent that God's inviting us into. Let's let God stir our hearts. Let's not get sucked up into the noise and the, 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 uh, the activity of the business of the season. Let's guard our hearts a little bit, embrace Advent, and notice the awe and wonder that's ours in, in noticing God fulfill his promises in the past, in the present, and find hope in the promises yet to be fulfilled. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, it's, uh, your word is rich. There's so much here, so much more that we could have uh, touched upon. It's so hard to, to, kind of, to, to look at this one person's life and, and to, um, to allow you to stir that awe and wonder in our hearts. It's difficult, Lord. So help us, I pray, first of all. Help us to, to be still to notice you, to, to look upon the life of Isaac and realize that it's more than, Isaac was more than just a, a child given to a, 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 an older man and woman. But he's a child that carried a promise, a promise that would carry into the next generation, the next generation, the next generation, until Christ came and ultimately fulfilled what Isaac pointed forward to. Lord, I pray that, that you would that that truth, that reality, would stir in our hearts. That, Lord, even as we face uh, moments of discouragement, of, of feeling despair and grief in this difficult season, Lord, because the holidays are. They're reminders of, of not just what is yet to come, but also the losses we've experienced. And so, Lord, I pray that as we think on the things you have done in the life of your people and in the life of your church, and the promise you have fulfilled and will yet fulfill. Lord, I pray that that would stir in our hearts. That that's where we would experience the peace of heaven coming down upon us. Father, thank you for an invitation to be still and to know you are God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.